Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover today, and last week we started the series on uh, Jesus and the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, and so I have probably more like notes and references than I normally do, so I don't want you to get overwhelmed. So for those of you kind of note-taker people or whoever just wants the notes, I have notes I can send you after the fact, so don't get stressed out, and I don't want to be like added stress to your life this week as if we don't have enough stress in our life. So just know I'm going to have like several references. I didn't want to put 50 PowerPoint slides up there, so just email me if you want all the references. Um, But this kind of functions as a Part two introduction, last week we started on Jesus, the I am statements, and we started how, uh, with John's gospel, talking about the uniqueness of it, I want to do that again, remind you, John's gospel stands out in particular, its literary style, the author himself. Now, nearly 90% of John's content, his material, cannot be found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. That's how unique John's book is. Now, the four gospels don't contradict each other to remind you, but the life and ministry of Jesus, there's this unique perspective because of John the author. As a disciple, as an apostle, John the author had a mandate to testify. You're going to hear that word testify and witness throughout the message today. Testifying to what he had seen, what he had heard. That's going to be very important as we look at John the author, who felt he had a mandate to tell the truth, to testify and to be a witness. That's another word we'll focus on today. Now, to remind you, this disciple John attributed to him, we believe, our five books of the New Testament. Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then a fifth book, the book of Revelation. By the way, it's singular revelation, not revelations, just so you know. And so those five books are attributed to John. Now, we're not absolutely certain, all five books, but that's our best guess And so he is a well-written person. His gospel makes an incredible contribution to the New Testament. I'm going to make that argument because think about this. Without John's gospel, you would not have this verse, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16. You wouldn't have, in the beginning was the word, John 1, 1. Or that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, John 10, 10. Or that the word became flesh, John 1, 14. Or then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, John 8, 32. Or a new commandment I give you, love one another, John 13, 34. Or God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4. I can go on and on and on. Without the gospel of John, you would not have the story of the woman at the well in Samaria. Famous story. No miracle of the water turning into wine without the gospel of John. Can you imagine the Bible without this book? And there was even some debate at some point amongst earlier Christians about whether it should be in the Bible, because it was so unique. So they don't contradict each other, but John, the apostle, the evangelist, the author had a very unique perspective on Jesus and expressed that in his book. You wouldn't have the famous I am statements that we're studying the next several weeks. And this sermon 
becomes a second introduction as we launch into those. You wouldn't hear Jesus' words, I am the bread of life in John 6.35, or I'm the light of the world, John 8.12, or I'm the good shepherd, John 10.11, or I'm the resurrection and the life, John 11.25, or before Abraham was, I am, John 8.58, or I am the true vine, John 15.1, or one of my favorites, I am the way, the truth, the life, John 14.6. Can you imagine the Bible without the Gospel of John, what we'd be missing? So today, though, we're going to continue this series by not focusing on the I am statements of Jesus, but this one little I am statement of John the Baptist, where he says in our text today, I am not, I am not, in John 1 verse 20. Now, keep in mind, John the Baptist is not the same person as John, the author of this gospel. So that means in John's gospel, every time you see the name John, it is not referring to the writer of the gospel. It's referring to John the baptizer, which I will call him. And I say that because back in those days, there were no Baptists or Presbyterians or Pentecostals. So this is John the baptizer, not John the Baptist, okay? Now, John the baptizer is not the disciple who wrote the book. In fact, John the disciple, the evangelist, is never mentioned in his own book. That's actually one of the theories why they think it is him. He kind of secretly alluded to himself in this gospel story, why, uh, weaving into the story this reference six times as the one that Jesus loved. We believe is John the disciple, not John the baptizer. So, calling John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, just so you're with me. Hope that doesn't bother you. And so last week, we launched into this I am statements of Jesus by making the case that the first I am statement we should focus on of Jesus is not one found explicitly in John's gospel. That in fact, I made the case that Jesus could say first and foremost that I am the beloved of God. And I made that case because his father pronounced it as his baptism by John the baptizer. And so today we continue this introduction to the I Am series by emphasizing what we we should be saying. We also should be saying, I am the beloved of God because of Christ's work. But we all should be saying, as John the baptizer models for us, I am not the Messiah. I am not God. I cannot save myself. I am not all-knowing. I am not perfect. I'm not even good compared to the holiness of God the best human being on the planet needs salvation through Jesus. I am not capable of saving myself. I cannot do enough good work to even out the bad I've done. And you might say, Pastor, I haven't done anything that bad. Well, think of all the things in the world that we could be fixing and healing. And one day we see God face to face. How could we ever measure up and say, I spend all of my time helping every single person out. That's impossible, right? It's only by the grace of God who's going to be judging each one of us who looks at us when we say yes to Jesus. When we say because of Jesus Christ and his life and his death, his resurrection, we give our lives to him, put our faith in him that God looks at us and sees us as righteous. He gives us Christ's righteousness and says, you don't have to do anything to prove your value and worth, because you never could do enough good to earn your way into heaven. Doesn't that make sense? You can never do enough to convince God you're good enough. And so God says, stop trying. Just receive my gift of grace, that you are my beloved child of God. 
when you say you need Jesus' grace. And so we get to live into what John the baptizer lived into, a life of saying, I am not the Messiah. I am not capable of saving myself. I'm not able to be good enough to earn my way into heaven. No one can. Not one human being can earn their way. It has to be received as a gift, only as a beloved child of God who receives it as God's grace. Chosen before the foundation of the world. How much good did you do before the foundation of the world? Zero. It has to be God's grace, right? And so we continue this introduction to the I Am series by emphasizing John the baptizer, saying, I am not, and I'm saying to you that should be something that's on our lips. I am not. I need Jesus. And our job is to be a witness like John the baptizer to the great I am Jesus that we'll be studying the next several weeks. We're a witness to Jesus by our words, proclaiming how Jesus changed our lives, but we're a witness to Jesus by our actions, proclaiming he's good when we collect diapers for babies in need and they need them, and car seats for babies in need and they need them. That's a sign that we're saying it's all about King Jesus. It's not about me. I am not the center of my own life. Jesus is and needs to be. We're a witness. Our actions are words to show a broken world that Jesus cares and he came to save. So one of the most distinguishing characteristics of the gospel of John is that it is written, catch this, as if Jesus is on a continuous trial as if in a courtroom. So I want you to notice the word witness that comes up or testify that comes up. I want you to even think about John the baptizer is actually on the stand giving evidence, giving testimony to the trueness of Jesus as the Son of God. That Jesus, you've imagined him on a continuous trial as if he is being accused by Satan. I don't know if you know this. Did you know that Satan's name comes from the Hebrew word for lawyer? Any lawyers in the house? Uh, so don't send me any angry emails. I'm not. I don't need you to sue me for that. I'm just letting you know. Really, it is. Satan in the Hebrew, and you look at the book of Job, you look in the Hebrew scriptures, the accuser, literally. Jesus is being accused of being someone who really isn't. You're not son of God. This is exactly what happened in the wilderness. You're not a Messiah. You're not a savior. You're not divine. You can't forgive sins. All the things that Jesus will be proclaiming throughout the gospels he is being accused and is on trial, and John the baptizer is as if he is the first star witness in this trial to defend Jesus' claim as the true Messiah. So John the baptizer could really be called John the witness, and you'll see that word come up several times. Not the light himself, he will tell you, but John should be called John the witness who testifies to the light. And so we get to see John as if he's in a courtroom speaking his truth the reality of Jesus, who's the true light. And so let's see how John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus the great I am. So I'm gonna quickly try to get through these next three sections and we're gonna jump around John chapter one. If you wanna follow along with me, if you wanna use this wonderful Bible we've uh, provided for you, we're on page 886 and we're gonna start in verse 29 right now. I'm gonna make... Um, some allusions to John being a witness, first of all, to Christ's baptism, which actually, interestingly, isn't even specifically described in John 1, but it's alluded to from the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels. So in verse 29, it says, uh, 
the next day. So in verse 28, John the baptizer, actually it's alluding to the baptism that he did, but it doesn't state it there. But in verse 29, it says, the next day, which is probably after the baptism, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for those of you note takers, and people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and I'm going to make the case over the next seven weeks. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Right here in the beginning, who can forgive sins? Not you, not me, even a priest doesn't forgive sins sins, really. It's ultimately God. Here's the claim right here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're going to see if you even look in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Well, the Logos, it's Jesus. It's the whole point of John 1. So we already have it. Boom, at John 1, Jesus is God, the mystery of the Trinity, okay? And so what we have is John, the baptizer, calling Jesus the Lamb of God, implying that this man, Jesus, will somehow be the ultimate sacrifice, not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. And though the Jewish sacrificial system through the temple had to constantly sacrifice lambs for forgiveness, what John is claiming is that a new order is coming, which completely overturns everything they know about God. Can you imagine coming to church one day and someone proclaiming everything you know about church is completely changed? Be a riot, right? That's what John the baptizer is doing. Basically, what he's doing is proclaiming that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the ultimate Lamb of God. And eventually what will be found out by the religious leaders who don't like this kind of talk is that Jesus is claiming for himself, no more lambs need to be slain anymore because the ultimate Lamb has come. There's no more need for this worship like this. The only blood that's needed to be shed will be done by me and be final. John is introducing a radical change. So imagine this, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is the final and last sacrifice needed. So keep this in mind, that the good shepherd Jesus is also the sacrificial Lamb of God, somehow in the mystery of God's personhood and his desire to come and save us. He's a good shepherd, and he's also the sacrifice Lamb that makes a way for you to have this eternal love that we've been talking about. Now, John himself, I believe, is coming to this further realization of who Jesus is. You take a look at verse 32, if you jump down with me, where he says, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. He's describing the baptism of Jesus, again, from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, now he's talking about the father, God, that God told him, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 34, and John the baptizer says, and I have seen and have bore witness that this is the son of God. We'll talk about that phrase son of God a little bit later. John the baptizer is having this growing understanding. This is, just isn't my cousin. Remember their cousins? John the baptizer is six months older. Like he's just not my cousin who does woodworking. This is the son of God. Can you imagine one of your cousins saying that? Now look at verse 34 again. I have seen and bore witness. There's that word. Because the entire gospel of John is testifying that Jesus is not just Messiah, but also God himself. That's the claim I'm going to make. That Jesus' deity was also seen in two different titles of Jesus. Let's talk about son of God first. 
And then we're going to talk about I am second, two different titles, son of God and then I am. So a son of God, I'm going to roll through this really fast. This is where you're going to want to email me all the references, okay? So the title son of God could be used in the Old Testament to speak of kings, to speak of Israel, uh, could be speaking of angels. But in John's gospel in particular, it meant that more than just a faithful follower of God. In fact, you see John throughout his gospel, in example in chapter 1, verse 18, he talks about Jesus as the one and only from the Father and the one and only God. In fact, our version in verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That actually is refer- referencing Jesus, the only God. <laughs> This mystery of the Trinity, again, Father, Son, and Spirit is already introduced in John chapter 1. And then it continues the connection of the one and only phrase with the title Son in John 3.16. If you take a look at John 3.16, shows that the title Son of God in John implies that Jesus is God. Now, the first chapter of the gospel of John gave a glimpse of this. Like I said, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Keep reading. The Word is Jesus, okay? Now, and you see throughout, I can mention more and more references of Jesus doing God-like actions and being referred as the divine Son, and and in John chapter 5, and John chapter uh, 17, verse 5, he made his dwelling among us as the divine Son. And so I want you to see from the outset of chapter 1, throughout John's gospel, Son of God equates with God himself, this mystery, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's a second title I want to mention too, which is a study for the next several weeks. The second title that points to Jesus' divinity we're going to focus on, it's the I am. And it's more frequently that phrase used in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, this title was used of God himself in the Old Testament, Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. And by using this I am with reference to Jesus, I think John as the author is making a very clear allusion to Jesus himself being mysteriously the great I am in flesh. I am who I am, Exodus 3. The disciple Thomas then gets it right when he, we see him exclaim in John 20, 28, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God is what he calls Jesus. John the baptizer has this growing understanding. This just ain't my woodworking cousin. This is the Messiah. He even alludes to Jesus pre-existing him, the one who came before me. That he is the eternal word of God, the Logos, God himself. And so the entire gospel of John is testifying that Jesus is not just Messiah, but also God. Now, John is a witness in a few different ways. Let me quickly go through it. You take a look at verse 6 again. And it says this, there was a man, this is John the baptizer, sent from God. This is 1 verse 6, chapter 1, 6, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Do you see the courtroom now? Witness, 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 witness. Jesus is being accused, right? Falsely saying he's the divine one, the son of God, ability to forgive sins. He's the light of the world. He's the resurrection of life. The accuser, Satan's going after him. And John the baptizer is the first witness saying, no, I've seen it for himself. All that he's saying about himself is true. 
John the Baptist's ministry is a witness to the light so that all might believe in the Logos, this eternal word of God, whom all creation, keep in mind from John 1, all of creation has emanated from this word. Well, how can that be just a man? How can that be even just a prophet or even just an angel? This is God himself. And so in fact, we see this is a very important word, the word witness in the gospel of John. It's 14 times in the gospel of John, only three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke altogether. The verb to witness is found 33 times in John's gospel and only two times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, so why does John, the witness, we might ask, appear right here in the beginning? Here's a little side note. Some scholars think that the goals of John, the evangelist gospel, is to correct an overemphasis in the early church on John the baptizer. If you uh, keep a note here, Acts 19.3, as the early church was growing and expanding, the apostles actually encountered a whole group of people who were followers of John the baptizer, not followers of Jesus. That John the baptizer was so popular, he had his own followers who weren't following Jesus, but following John. (laughs) And so John's gospel is actually trying to correct perhaps an early church, early Christian overemphasis amongst some groups or sects on actually following John the baptizer, not Jesus. So here we have it very clear, clearly where John the baptizer says, I am not the Messiah. Keep following Jesus. I'm just a humble servant pointing to the true light. That's what John the baptizer is doing clearly in John chapter one. We even see in John chapter three as well. So John's a witness to Jesus. He's the true light. But secondly, he's also a witness to the priests and Levites. These are the the Jewish authorities who are running the temple. They don't like what John is doing, saying that everything is overturned. There's a lamb of God who's implying there's no more other sacrificial lambs are needed. Their whole system's getting turned upside down. Keep in mind, John is baptizing at the Jordan River roughly around, let's say, 29 AD or 29 CE, depending on how you note it yourself. He's confronted by the Jewish authorities right here uh, in John uh, chapter one. And this would make Jesus around 33 years old, we believe. John is, remember, six months older than his cousin Jesus. And you take a look at verse 19. And it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, you don't get the tone of this, right? The context, but it wasn't probably a friendly like, oh, who are you? It was like, who are you? What are you doing, Right? John is clearly making a stir we see from the other gospels, especially Luke, that crowds are coming to be baptized by him. And not just Gentiles, which John was allowed to do. You're allowed to baptize Gentiles because they're unclean. John was baptizing Jews, implying that the temple leaders weren't doing their job. That's why this is so radical. John is basically saying the whole temple system is messed up. I need to baptize even good Jews because they don't know the true way. The leaders are not following the true way. These leaders are definitely coming and saying, who are you to say this? Who are you to imply this? Who are you to start a movement that's undermining our traditions, right? What John is doing is very controversial. That's why the Jewish authorities have shown up because they see them, a, a Jewish follower has gone awry. John is telling people something's wrong with the temple, so they send out the suits to make sure John understands where the power resides. This is like the IRS showing up to you when your taxes aren't deducted quite right, right? It's not a friendly visit. They're trying to shut John down, likely. And then you take a look at verse 20. John confessed, he confessed and didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
See, though many thought John was the Messiah, he says clearly, I am not the Christ. I am not the promised Messiah that's going to free Israel from the oppression of Rome. I am not him. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the great end time prophet that is to be expected. But John says there is one who was present. And he's not even worthy to do the humble disciples' work of untying the thong, the straps of the master's sandal, the dirty feet covered in dirt and animal dung in first century Palestine. He's like, that's how unimportant I am. You think I'm great? I have all these crowds? You think I have power? Oh, you have no idea who just walked in, this Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, this son of God, this divine one, this great I am. You have no idea who you're dealing with, do you? I'm not even worthy to clean off the animal dung off his feet. That's what John the baptizer is saying. Even though John is greatly revered by the crowd, he clearly humbles himself and he points to a greater one to come. And I just want to say, isn't that what we should be doing? Our whole life is all about pointing to the greater one to come. In fact, turn with me to John 3. We'll read a few verses here. John 3, 28. You yourselves bear witness. This is John the baptizer speaking. And that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. Verse 29. The one who has the, has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Verse 30, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. John's joy in life was to keep decreasing himself so much that it just kept pointing to the greatness of King Jesus. His joy was to keep decreasing his sense of importance. His joy was to keep decreasing his sense that I got it all together. His joy was to keep decreasing trying to make it about him. It's all about Jesus. That was John the Baptist, the baptizer's call in life, to keep decreasing that Jesus would be seen for his huge love, his unending grace. John the baptizer knew clearly, I am not capable of changing one person's heart, but I know someone who is. I'm not capable of giving this world hope, but I know someone who is. I'm not capable of even doing my work or my art or my life or my relationships well, but I know someone who is, and I'm going to keep pointing to him, making less of myself and making much of King Jesus John knows he is special. He knows it. He has power. He has influence. He has crowds. He has the authority scared about him, but he doesn't hold on to that. He knows it's temporary. It's all for the joy of decreasing himself that Christ might be seen for all who he is. Humility marks his life as a servant of the Lord. John models what all followers of Jesus should aspire to become humble servants who know that the only joy in life is found by centering their lives around the great I am, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, King Jesus. You will destroy your life by putting yourself at the center. You were not meant to be at the center. I've said it before, our solar system wouldn't work very well if the earth was the center, not the sun. Really bad news for you all. Tearing us apart. 
And guess what? You're not going to do very well being the center of your solar system. You need the Son of God at the center, revolving around Him. He must become greater. I must become less, if it's all going to make sense. In my life, if I'm going to have joy, it's decentering myself, and it's lifting up the name and person of Jesus. It's a life of humility. See, the I am not phrase from John the baptizer is the phrase that we need to own. I'm not in control. I am not the Savior. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not perfect by any means. I am a sinner. I am in great need. I am fickle. I am lazy. I'm sloppy. I'm prideful. I need King Jesus. I'm going to play you a song by Phil Wickham who's coming to play um, this next week. We sang one of his songs earlier. I remember meeting him 20, almost 20 years ago, maybe about 17 years ago, and he was a young guy. And I remember thinking, wow, this is an impressive young guy writing good songs. And he came up with a song and it says, if you are the sun, I want to be the moon. Would you hear these lyrics? Let them sink in as we pay attention to the screens for a minute.
heard him uh, sing that song, I said, that is exactly how I need to live. Friends, you're not the sun. He is. Your only job is to be the moon, a big rock (laughs) reflecting his light. That's all you need to do. And you reflect his light and you collect diapers and you collect, you know, you're reflecting his light as we, we shine in the schools and you visit someone who's lonely. You're not the light. You have one job, reflect his light. It's a lot of brokenness in this world. God is not asking you to be something you cannot be. You are not the light, but you are called to reflect him and to be present in dark places, that his light might shine off of you, in you, and through you. How's God calling you to just be faithfully reflecting light? John the baptizer's joy, his joy was being a humble servant. I must decrease, he must increase. I want to close with this prayer and requests from Kristen Palinka. She's a personal friend of Kobe Bryant's, and she said this. She says, as the world moves on, please continue to keep all those lost in your prayers. For many, the grieving process has only just begun, and the hardest part lies ahead. We grieve, though, with a bigger hope for heaven, a knowledge of what's most important in this life, a reliance on God, a desire to live more fully and impactfully, and a pursuit of excellence in all we do. Friends, don't waste your life trying to be the light. You were never meant to be it. You're meant to reflect his goodness in a dark and needy world. Would you pray with me as we prepare ourselves for communion? Lord, our prayer is that even in our losses, even amidst the ashes during this Lenten season, that we will be witnesses to the goodness of you, God to a watching world, that we wouldn't waste our lives running around about trivial things, trying to expend our lives, trying to show how important we are, but instead we would humble ourselves as we come to the bread and the cup today. We need you so desperately, not to be saved again, we're already saved if we know you, but to remind ourselves of our desperate need of your love, of your eternal security and your hope for a broken world. And so Lord Jesus, Help us to choose to keep pointing to you, the Lamb of God, pointing to the light of the world, simply reflecting your light. As we come to this table, we recommit ourselves to you, the great I am, sharing the good news in words and actions. We come to this table humble, hungry, thirsty, ready to recommit ourselves to who we already are, beloved children of God, placed on this planet to reflect your light. King Jesus, we recognize your presence, and in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.